little boy in a baseball hat stands in the field with his ball and bat. Says I am the greatest player of them all. Puts his bat on his shoulder and he tosses up his ball. Ball goes up and the ball comes down, swings his bat all the way around. The world's so still you can hear the sound. The baseball falls to the ground. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Cott. This is Cott's Corner. Always great to meet with the Hall of Famer here to discuss Major League Baseball, youth parents. Uh, we've got a little bit of uh, Tito. Terry Francona retiring today and the unfortunate passing of Brooks Robinson. Um, uh, Jim's going to have some, some stories about Brooks and, and some things that he'll be involved with uh, in the next next week or so regarding his his services and whatnot. But um, before we bring Jim in, just want to thank our audience here, 50,000 plus subscribers, 74 countries. Because of your push, because of your support, uh, we are now the latest podcast streaming group on iHeartRadio. So thank you so much for that. I think it's, it's, it's similar to getting a cup of coffee in the big leagues. So in order to stay in the big leagues with podcasting, we need for you guys to continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. Flood iHeart. Flood iHeart with your listening. You can still do it on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher. Make sure you give Jim five stars for his effort today and write some nice comments under there. Had a lot of great questions for today's show. I know we went back and forth a little bit uh, throughout the week um, and into your travels. But, uh, Jim, welcome back to your show here. It's great to have you. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. I like that opening song, you know, that, uh, uh, especially timely with, uh, with the passing of Brooksy and then Tito retiring. So, uh, you know, it's, it's about two guys that uh, when they were kids dreamed about being big leaguers, and they certainly did, and they made their mark in uh, Brooks as a, as a player. And Tito as a prospect that I think was on the road to being a great player, and then he actually suffered an injury a night in St. Louis in 1982 when I was pitching in that game, and that kind of derailed his career, but he, uh, he went on to become one of the great managers of his era. Yeah. What happened in that injury? I'm not familiar with it. Maybe, maybe our audience. Well, we were playing the Expos and that's who Tito was drafted by. You know, he was the MVP in the College World Series and a uh, highly touted college player coming out of University of Arizona. And uh, the uh, the Expos had us beat like by six or seven runs. And, and we weren't the kind of team that came back with, with home runs. We were speed and singles. So when we got that far behind, uh, it was pretty much a lost cause. So uh, I think it was Jim Fanning was the manager of the Expos. And since Charlie Lee had a big lead, he uh, he took out most of the regulars after their, you know, second or third at bat. And uh, Tito said, well, you know, Charlie's got a good one going. He's got a shutout going and uh, I want to stay in there for him. And so he stayed in one more inning and uh, there was a fly ball hit out to left field. It was a rainy night. And at that time, Bush Stadium had that rubberized warning track, you know, AstroTurf field with rubberized warning track. Yeah. And as Tito went back to the wall and jumped, he, when he came down, uh, he hit that slick rubberized warning track and his uh, leg just went right out from other him, under him. And that's when he suffered a, a damaging knee injury. And he never really recovered that, from that. He had surgery in Philadelphia, kind of a botched surgery, he had staph infection, and 
he went on, you know, since that day to have knee issues, uh, heart issues, and it was all started with that injury back in 1982. Oh, wow. I, I wasn't aware of that, uh, the nature of that injury and how it came about. I did know he, he got, he did get hurt. And he's a, he's a legacy in baseball too. His father was a good player as well, correct? Yeah, I, I count them as one of my, I think, seven or eight father-son combinations that I actually pitched against. And his dad had told Tito about me years before. I pitched against, uh, you know, Terry is Tito's really name, but he always went by Little Tito. And uh, Tito, uh, I think, came within four or five bats of winning, uh, four or five at bats of winning a batting title back when he was with Cleveland in the 60s. He had about 360, but he was not a full-time player. Uh, so I pitched against him and, and got to meet him. And then uh, Terry, of course, who became little Tito. So, uh, yeah, it was it was nice to be able to say I faced both of them. And more importantly, I got to be good friends with both of them. Yeah. And I, I always loved his managerial style as well. I, I, it's unfortunate what happened to him as a player. But I think we're fortunate in baseball to have been able to experience him as a manager as well, especially this younger generation. Maybe they don't remember him with the Red Sox, but he was a – he was a calming hand for them in a, uh, you know, a very sports crazy town similar to New York. Um, and and I, I don't like the way he went out in Boston, the way they, they tried to turn it to, to where it was, was him. He, did, uh, he was as much a reason for their success as anybody, any player, any front office person. His steadying hand uh, kept them moving. Well, you know, when one door closes, another one opens. And actually, it ended up being a, a great thing to happen to Tito in the long run because he's legendary in Cleveland. You know, he took them to the, he took them to the world series and had some, you know, uh, division championships and he's beloved there as he was still in, uh, in Boston. And I think he's an example of a lot of your great managers were not necessarily great players, but they, because they understood what it was to fail. Yeah. Uh, you know, Frank Robinson, when he first became a manager, I think he, he had a hard time understanding that every player wasn't as great as he was. And so his, his expectations were so high. And when a player didn't do something properly, you know, it would annoy him. He just didn't understand that. But then when you look at Jim Leland and uh, when you look at Whitey Herzog, you look at Tom Kelly, uh, you look at a lot of the managers that were successful, uh, they understood what it was like to go over 10 or, make mistakes in the field. And I think because of that, they, uh, they became so supportive of their players. And as a result, got the respect of the players, uh, and the admiration from them that, uh, helped them, you know, become great managers. Yeah. I often said that when I, I, when I got into college coaching, spent 20 plus years that because I went through, I, I was, I was everybody at some point in time on that roster, whether it's the you know, the backup point guard or the six man or the, the go-to guy, the defensive stopper. Um, at the time you're going through it, you don't always appreciate it. But at the end of the day, I felt like that helped me relate uh, to players when I coached one day because I can honestly say, and I did that as a coach too. I started sweeping the floors, driving the buses. You know, I, was, I, was, I, I made sure I did everything. Um, I felt like I could relate to them more in that regard. And, and there really wasn't much they could say that uh, that, I, that I would have, uh, I don't want to say, I would have empathy. I could understand, but I didn't have sympathy for it. But I, I could, uh, I could certainly relate. So I'm I, uh, unfortunate with the knee, but maybe a, a blessing with his managerial style. Yeah, you know, the point you make there is uh, is what 
you went through and then what what uh, potential big league managers went through in the minor leagues. And I'm sure uh, Tito did. Tito managed uh, Michael Jordan in the minor leagues when Michael yeah. played baseball for a year. But uh, in those days, you I'll, I'll dial it back even to my minor leagues in 58. Our bus driver was our trainer and our traveling secretary. And he had a little tube of ethyl chloride and a towel. And that was it. <laughs> And so we, we didn't have trainers, we didn't have assistant coaches, and managers didn't have that at their disposal. Now, if you see a minor league manager today, why every move he makes is dictated by what the front office has told him. Well, you can pitch this guy today for 10 pitches, and then you have to take him out. And so-and-so load management, we we need to give him a couple days rest. So, you know, the, the managers that came up, like you came up as a coach, you could coach the way you wanted to and learn how to do it the right way. Today, they're at the mercy of the propeller heads. Yeah. And they'll, they'll never find their true north doing that, uh, no. not having the experiences. And similar, I think, the unfortunately, the players are going through that as well. They're being cookie-cuttered under this same system. And that's the fear I have for, for young kids and parents trying to govern their young kids, that they'll never figure out who they are and Someone asked me the other day, you know, I was fortunate. I got to play two college sports for four years. I got to play professional baseball. I coached for a long time. And the the thing that I always caution people about with sports is it shouldn't be a destination. Um, you know, you make the big time where you're at. But the biggest thing that I got from sports was self-exploration. I figured out who I was. Um, I learned a lot about myself. And I use that in parenting and I, I use it when I'm helping these young kids out. But I, I fear that we're, we're about to embark upon a generation that's not going to be able to figure out who they are. Well, that's a great point because uh, I hear it every day. I heard it today when I went to my physical therapy uh, appointment. I got a little hamstring issue, but nothing major. But, you know, I'm talking to someone who's, uh, you know, a parent of a, of a 12-year-old athlete. And uh, everything is, uh, yeah, well, this guy came he doesn't really practice hard. He doesn't like it because he's only doing it because his dad sent him there. And I've now, my, my go-to phrase is to parents, drop your kid off to the game and go to a movie. And yeah. then when you pick them up, say, did you have fun today? And I have, I'll guarantee you that the kids had more fun when they were out there just with their buddies playing for fun and not being uh, hollered at by their parents or even coaches to, well, you didn't do that the right way. And, uh, you know, I think we're, we're finding out when we talk to more uh, coaches that were little league coaches, their experience in the long run is that anything a young athlete does before high school should be done for enjoyment and because they love it, because they want to do it. I think that I mentioned the Bodie Miller uh, phrase the last podcast we had. If, if yeah. even if I did, I'll say it again. Yeah, he said the the guy he feared in a race uh, was the guy who did it because he loved it, not because he was doing it to please somebody else. Because they'll flame out. They'll just do it for a while, and you know, and they're well. My dad wanted me to do this, or my mom did, and uh, somehow or other, I don't know who the catalyst for getting it done, but. We certainly have to do something about that with our young. Uh, last night, I was asked at this uh, group of adult, uh, you know, golfers that are in for a four-day kind of a golf event, and 
one of the questions came up about the young injuries and I told him about how this this same thing that kids should be allowed to to do it for fun that we're making a mistake of asking them to do things at a at a young age when their bodies are not capable of doing it and uh, I got an ovation for it and they came up to me afterwards and they were all grandparents for the most part and they said yeah our, our son has these two kids and they're good yeah, but they just push him to do this you got to throw harder and we're, we're killing kids we're ruining kids not only physically but as you said, to find their own identity and what they really want to do. There are some kids there that are probably forced to play baseball or soccer or whatever, and they'd probably be, uh, they want to be an artist or a pianist. They want to do something else for fun. And uh, we, we somehow have to find a way to allow them to do what they love. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I had, I've had recent, since I joined Civilization and Facebook recently, I've had conversations with former teammates all the way back to, to Little League. And the biggest, uh, one of the biggest misconceptions that, uh, that they had, and, uh, and some of them knew, but my dad was a coach, uh, but I wanted to be around him. I wanted to go to his practices and hang out. Um, it was fun for me. I, I, that's part of what I enjoyed. He used to try to keep me away, go do other things, go, but I wanted to be there. And um, I, when I went out and practiced, I never called it work, whether it was shooting, I would take, you know, four five, six, seven hundred 700 jump shots a day, try to make them. I loved, I loved it. I would hit nonstop. I loved, but I got tired lefty, I'd bat righty and vice versa. And the, the, the young guys I grew up with would say, you know, we, we always thought your dad made you do that, um, that he was out there. And we felt bad, like, wow, he's, and I said, and I, uh, but my close friends knew, I was like, no, I, I loved it. I enjoyed it. I figured out who I was going to be. And it was never for the purpose of, I want to make a lot of money playing sports. It was never for, I want to sign as, as high a level of scholarship as possible. Um, I enjoyed doing it. And I, I, what you said to those grandparents, I'm glad they gave you a standing ovation because that's the generation that's got to touch on the people that they created. Cause I'm probably the age of the parents that are driving these kids to do this stuff. Um, or maybe a little bit older than them. So I'm glad you're touching that group. Cause I think that's the part that you can impact. You can impact the grandparents who can impact these youth, the, the generation that's in that 40 some odd range, they're lost. Those are the ones that are creating monsters out there for these kids and, and coaches. You know, I, that, that's uh, such a great point because as a grandparent, my youngest grandson who lives out in Arizona, and I was telling my daughter-in-law, I said, well, you know, one of these days, because it's tough to geographically to, to get to see them as much because I'm on the East Coast, they're way out in the West Coast. And I said, maybe uh, Bryce is at the age now, I'll come out there for spring training or something. I'll take him to a baseball game. And my daughter-in-law said, well, he probably wouldn't want to go to a baseball game, but he'd love to have you take him to a museum. Well, that's great. Yeah. I would do that. But there's probably a lot of grandparents that say, museum? No. We're going to take you to a baseball game. You got to play baseball. That's where the money is, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. But if, if Bryce wants to go to a museum, I'm all in. I'll take him. I'll go to New York, take him to the Museum of Natural History. That's what he loves. Yeah, that, that's that's fantastic. And that's what it should be about. They Kids will find their passion in something. And if they, they – I think all kids should do something active. Um, but, you know, with the percentage – and you made a point. I think it was one of the grandparents asked the question. But in knowing that the, the percentage of these kids, once they play high school sports, they're never going to play again. It's it's their last opportunity to play sports, um, whether it's coming up from Little League to Babe Ruth to Cal Ripken, they call it now, um, 
to high school, I wish that the parents and the high school coaches would understand that because of those percentages being so low of these kids ever doing and even going to college to play, that they should readjust their role as high school coaches and parents and make it about enjoyment, make it about learning, to treat it like a class, um, you know, like a math class. There's, teach these kids the game, the different positions. It shouldn't be all about, hey, we're going to we're gonna run the St. Louis Cardinal strength conditioning program. Well, you, you don't yeah. have a St. Louis Cardinal player on your team. Uh, you know, you, you got 12 guys that are never going to play again. And uh, what, a, what a great experience if they left high school enjoying the game um, as opposed to, you know, drudgery of having to get yeah. out there. So I'm glad you're getting out there speaking, speaking there. Yeah, well, my, uh, and, and right along with that, my friend, John Stuper, who I was kind of a mentor for John when we were teammates with the Cardinals and he went on to coach at Yale for 27 years. He's retired now, but he tells us even at the college level, look, the percentage of you guys ever making the major leagues is this, you know, it's what is it, 2% or whatever. So you're here and just the things that you've talked about, you're here to be learn to become a good teammate, enjoy the program. Certainly there's a certain amount of pressure on a, on a college coach, depending on the college you're coaching at to, to win. But, uh, the, the main thing is uh, to develop young men. And uh, certainly if, you, if you're playing a game and you're keeping score, you want to win, but you don't want to win at the extent of you're making it so pressurized on young athletes that they don't enjoy it. You want to you wanna teach them to play happy and enjoy what they're doing. And then if they win, that's a bonus. Yeah. You know, one of, I want to get your opinion on this. This is uh, somebody asked me a question and I'm going to write about it tomorrow. And, um, there's those common phrases. It goes in line with what you're talking about now. You hear a lot of these coaches or big athletes say, you know, I was, I was, very, I was obsessed with winning, some, some variation of that. Then the newest phrase is, I hate losing more than I like winning. Um, I heard that in, in the, the Billy Bean movie there, um, Moneyball. And I got asked that question and I thought about it and I, I, didn't, I don't fall on either side. So I was trying to figure out how to answer it to give them insight into how my brain ticks. And I, I started writing back and I'll finish it tomorrow. But my ideas of it is I always wanted to win. I never wanted to lose, but every time I enter a competition um, or even something like preparation for our, our show today, it's about uh, learning. It's about exploration. It's about discovering a little bit more about me that day. I kind of mentioned it with, with why I went out there, but the obsessed with winning I would say I like winning as much as anybody. I would hate losing as much as anybody. But that's it. when it, when you enter a competition, that's it. Never drove me, and it concerns me that that's the only two choices out there. Either you're obsessed with winning, or you hate losing. And where's where's the other stuff? Where's the the part of learning? You, you've heard those quotes before. How, how do you feel about those? Well, I, I think looking at my own career in life, you know, in in high school and American Legion ball was the first organized organized baseball I played at age 15. Before that, it was uh, fast pitch softball because that was pre-Little League. But uh, I always looked forward to playing and I, I wanted to win, but I can't say I was obsessed with it. You know, and I wanted to selfishly as an individual, I wanted to prove that, you know, basically I was good at what I was doing. I wanted to do that. The only time I really became obsessed with winning and even then you have to be careful to be obviously uh, over-obsessed is when I turned professional, I was doing it for a living. Yeah. You know, then then winning and losing, uh, that's what my livelihood depended on. That was my job. Uh, then it became real serious to me about winning. 
But I can honestly say, even going back to American Legion ball and college ball, it was fun to see that I was doing well at what I was doing. But uh, if I did lose a game here or there, as uh, as my mother would say when I walked in the back door, you know, she, well, how'd you do today? Uh, and uh, I played on some really good teams for the most part in high school and amateur ball. But, you know, I'd have to say, wow, we didn't do too well. Well, you know, you did the best you could and you, maybe it'll be better next time. And so that's the way I kind of looked at it until I turned professional. And then obviously uh, things began become a little more serious because yeah. if you don't uh, if you don't win and produce then you lose your job yeah I always found that it was a, it was a tough balance for me because when I got over obsessed with winning or succeeding or having a certain average or that's when I would that's when my performance would become inhibited and same thing with losing that that hating losing hey, again I'm I'm not Zen like I'm, I'm not a yoga master I just you know I, I'm just like everybody else I fall on both sides, but I was, I was trying to make sense of that to the parent that yeah. asked me that question as guidance. But, um, well, I think it's a good segue into someone who, who, who played a position like they were Zen-like. I, it, it's almost, you could put it to, to music the way he played third base and you've got a special relationship with him. I've got a story to share if, if, if you sh- will, will indulge later on, but, uh, Brooks Robinson passing, um, yeah. sad baseball, uh, wonderful man, wonderful. I mean, to, to use the word wonderful as a man and wonderful as a player is, is probably a, a downgrade uh, from yeah. what he was. But I, you have a special relationship with him. I'll kind of let yeah, you show. I really did. I first met Brooks at uh, – we were both in the days when they had two All-Star games. We were He was on both teams. We were both on the All-Star team in 1962. And I think from the time I met him then, he always became Brooksy because he was – like they say in Baltimore, he didn't have fans. He just had friends. Every fan was a friend. But uh, I'm, I'm starting to compile my notes because I've been asked to speak at uh, the memorial service Monday on behalf of the alumni, of which uh, Brooks took over. I was president of the alumni uh, in the late 1980s for a few years. And then Brooks took over after uh, I went into broadcasting and uh, he was president for 33 years. And uh, so I, I got to know him and spend a lot of time with him. But I, I look at uh, I look at Brooks and I'm, I'm going to speak on behalf of the alumni and probably on behalf of the Hall of Fame is that he was as humble and authentic and oftentimes inconspicuous uh, superstar that we had in the game. If you watch the highlights that they began to play after everyone heard about his passing, when he hit a home run, he almost sprinted around the bases. And when he got to home plate, he barely stopped to shake the hands of his teammates and then tipped his cap and went right in the dugout. You know, it's like, I don't want to be seen or I don't want to draw any uh, attention to myself. But, uh, you know, when the, when, and he wasn't a physically imposing uh, player, you know, he, he didn't have, uh, I would say at best average speed, uh, average power, an average arm. He doesn't fit the profile of today's big league players who physically are probably the most gifted of players in the, in the history of baseball. But yet when the ball was hit toward Brooks, uh, he became bigger than life. You know, all eyes were on him because he, he had great reaction time. He had great footwork. He had the ability to get the ball out of his glove and make throws from all these crazy angles, 
particularly in the 1970 World Series, which I think might have been the first time he played on artificial turf. And that's the series that kind of is, uh, that kind of stands out as the, uh, the greatest five days, as he said, that he got in a role in 1970, both with the bat and with the glove. But uh, that as you being an infielder, he, he always used his glove unless the ball was standing still because uh, had stopped rolling because in those days the fields were not manicured quite as well as the fields today. And he just had that knack of using his glove and transferring the ball into the throwing position and getting it over there uh, just in time to get the writer, uh, to get the runner. And then as a, as a hitter, you know, one of the reasons uh, too that I, uh, I get to talk a lot about Brooks is I faced him more than any other player that I faced in my career, just a little bit more than Yastrzemski and, uh, and Louis Aparicio. Oh, wow. He basically owned me because uh, <laughs> he wasn't intimidating standing in the box like a Frank Howard or even like his teammate Frank Robinson, but he had the ability to find the middle of the ball with the barrel of the bat, no matter where the pitch was. And as his teammate Jim Palmer told me a few days ago when we talked, he said, winning run on second, ninth inning, Brooks Robinson will get you a single to center field better than anybody in the game. And that's that's what kind of uh, I identify with uh, with Brooks is that he it wasn't the long balls, but he'd just kill you with singles and doubles and uh, consistently, uh, particularly against me. And, uh, you know, his durability. I think uh, Cal Ripken, I'm sure I'll see Cal on Monday. Uh, I think Cal got inspiration from from playing every day to Brooks because Brooks's goal was, he said, when I got to the ballpark, I just wanted to see my name in the lineup. Well, he played over 150 games in 13 seasons. Yeah. In five seasons, he played every game. And one of those went 163 games because of a suspended game. And then oftentimes, because they were on good teams, uh, he played more in the postseason, so some years he probably play 170 games. So he was a you know a, a really example of durability. Uh, and then I think we, we you know we talked about his uh, his personality. They asked me, well, guys that hit you so well, you know, you have a tendency. Well, I want to move them off the plate. I want to knock them down. Well, I would say I can't knock Brooks Robinson down. That's like knocking down Santa Claus or Mother Teresa. You know, he was such a he was such a nice guy, and I had such uh, respect for him. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to that because uh, I just think uh, Brooksy it was very similar to my teammate Harmon Killebrew uh, in that he was such a, a gentleman and a, and a model for what players should be. As soon as I heard the news, I went to my cases of autographed baseballs, and I uh, dialed the, or the little carousel, and I found the one that he signed to me. And every time he'd see me after a few years that we got to know each other, he'd say, Kitty Cat, how you doing today? And so when he signed the baseball, it was Kitty Cat, thanks for your friendship, Brooks Robinson. And I think that's probably the neatest thing that uh, a former colleague could say, even though, you know, I wasn't his teammate, is that, uh, you know, we were friends. And it was, a, it was an honor to be able to say I was a a good friend of Brooks Robinson. So I'm looking forward to sharing those thoughts on Monday. Yeah. I think the baseball world will appreciate that. I know I did. I'm smiling ear to ear listening to you talk 
um, about him, but more importantly, I think his family will, will, will love to hear the words that you're speaking about him and hope our audience appreciates the insight that you're given as well. Cause it's a, it's intimate relationship that you have and you're, you're so giving to share that on the air right here. But as, as far as, I mean, you mentioned he was, he was not an imposing guy physically and he hit you well, but where, where did he bat in the lineup? What was his style of hitting? Um, share a little bit of that. The, the I think he, I think oftentimes actually he hit behind Frank. Uh, Frank Robinson, who that's that's the player that really turned the Orioles franchise around. I mean, uh, you know, they, they kind of looked like they were going to be good. We won the pennant in, in 65. Um, and up until then, the Yankees won, you know, five pennants in a row. But, uh, you know, when they put that pitching staff together of, uh, you know, Jim Palmer, Mike Cuellar, Dave McNally, uh, Pat Dobson, and then the lineup that they, they put uh, – you know, they, they uh, I think with Brooksy hitting behind Frank, it made him even better. And I guess Earl Weaver's thinking was uh, if they pitch around Frank and walk him, Brooks is a guy that's able to get a double and knock him in yeah. instead of vice versa. Because I remember a few times that I, I pitched around Frank Robinson to get to Brooks in hoping that I would get a ground ball for a double play because he didn't run very well. Now I I did get that a couple times, but not often enough. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, you know, one one year he had 118 RBIs. He was the American League MVP, oh, wow. and I don't think he hit that many home runs. But uh, he was an old school hitter that wouldn't fit the profile today of uh, you know of lift and launch. He just he could barrel it up and use the whole field. Yeah, that's what I was going to get. The other thing I'd want to say about Brooks is that when. When they won in 66 and then they beat us in the playoffs in 69 and 70 because they had that great starting pitching, uh, I always appreciated the way the Orioles won with grace and class. It wasn't a, a, a showy performance after they they clinched. You know, they would shake hands at the mound, go into the clubhouse. And today, of course, we see this ridiculous celebrations where even guys are getting injured. And I always... I always thought the, and I think that influenced Cal Ripken Jr. as well, is that uh, Brooks kind of led the way, as Harmon did for the Twins, with, uh, you know, how you act. It goes back to my old uh, saying that Al Shaver, the sportscaster, used in Minnesota, uh, when you lose, say little, when you win, say less. And uh, Brooks was the epitome of that. Yeah, I think in, in, as are you, I think like people attract like people. So I, uh, I think uh, people that know you would probably say very similar things about you as well. The humility, the humble approach to the game. And I'm hoping, you know, we, I got to see highlights this morning and, and I get sad watching the highlights now, whether it's MLB network or ESPN. Um, the first thing they show on there, and it's a player that I admire too. Um, you know, there's a bad call on Bryce Harper last night and yeah, Phillies need him in the lineup. They don't need him in the clubhouse. And he went, um, well, I won't use a bad word, uh, but he, he didn't handle it very well. Ended up throwing his helmet into the crowd. And, and, uh, I'm just like, Oh, first thing I got to watch when I turn on the highlights, and that's what the kids are watching and they sure. see that. And, uh, kid that caught his helmet, they had him on social media. Now Bryce Harper was nice enough to go out and sign it for him later. But the kid said, this is the greatest game I ever came to. And I'm like, Oh gosh, uh, the whole, the whole, uh, world is getting skewed on what the, the greatest game is. So I'm, I'm glad you shared Brooks Robinson's approach, uh, to the game, the kids that watch the highlights. And, and here, here's an example. He was asked, I've seen him asked a million times about Greg Nettles, who was obviously a very good defensive third baseman as well. 
and they ask him, who was better, you or Greg Nettles? And here's a I mean, very few people would dispute Brooks Robinson's greatness. He's so humble. He said, I don't know. He was pretty good, probably just as good or better than me. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking like, who else would make that comment? Nowadays, some guy would do a bow and arrow thing, do some dance and, you know, make, yeah. a, make a T-shirt and sell it about being the greatest. So, but um, I, I was going to share, and I, I guess I ruined the punchline calling it the Brooks Robinson story, but I was going to share my story with you. Kind of, it, uh, I put it on Facebook yesterday as well. Um, it, it's a, uh, an example of his humility so to speak. Um, this was my second year playing professional baseball. My mother called and asked me like she, you know, always would do it, you know, and I was more than happy to do it. Um, cause it wasn't like people were buying my autograph. So would you sign two baseballs for me and send them home? And I said, absolutely. So I did that. And she said they were for her, her twin sister, my aunt, she was bragging about her nephew, um, as a professional ball player, uh, to person she was doing business with at a bank, the president and one of their spokespeople. And, uh, so I sent them to my mom. My mom sent them to her and she thought it'd be good business. And I said, yeah, no problem. And uh, she called back to, to thank my mom. My mom said, yeah, she said that the consultant uh, or the spokesperson said that he played a little baseball too. And uh, he was going to sign a ball, you know, for your aunt. And I'm, you know, I didn't think anything of it. Everybody's got a story. Everybody, you know, everybody played a little bit and whatnot. So I just kind of went on with my day. Well, a week later, I get a package in the mail. Nice note from my aunt, as she always did. My family's very good about sending thank you notes, thanking me for the two baseballs. And um, there's probably some cookies in there too for the road, but there was a, an autographed baseball in there as well. And she had sent me the, the baseball autographed by the, the the consultant or the spokesperson. And I open it up and it's Brooks Robinson <laughs> who had, who had a quote unquote played a little. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I called my aunt and I said, do you know who signed that baseball? And she goes, I wasn't real familiar. She was not a baseball person, obviously. Right. And, uh, I said, that's Brooks Robinson. This is greatest third baseman of all time. I said, are you sure it's him? And she goes, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send your mom the picture of us together. And it was Brooks Robinson. So, you know, I, I was hoping it wasn't somebody goofing on her signing Brooks Robinson's name, but signed the baseball. And it's, I don't have, I'm not a big autograph collector. My son is, um, but uh, I have, I have one autograph on my shelf and it's that ball next to his rookie card. And uh, it's, it's uh, cause it's just, it's just such a great story of, of humility. Here I was, I'm like, I'm all excited, pumped up. Somebody wanted my autograph and, and, uh, you know, here's Brooks Robinson just kind of giving it away. And, uh, as a, as a, as a guy who played a little, so. Yeah. And then if you look at the signature, uh, Brooksy signed left-handed and, you know, our us lefties, our writing is a bit different than, than yeah. right-handers. So uh, even though he was an all right-handed player, he, uh, he signed his autograph left-handed. He's probably like his teammate, Jim Palmer, you know, who was a great, Obviously, pitcher, Hall of Fame pitcher, right-handed, but he actually plays uh, great tennis as a lefty. Plays tennis lefty. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of men. I'm, I'm the other way now. I throw right-handed. I'm a switch batter. I can't tell which one I'm better at. I like hitting lefty better than righty. I throw I throw righty, but I shoot the basketball left-handed. Um, I'm a lefty shooter by by uh, natural lefty shooter. So. Yeah, there's a lot of us messed up people out there. Right? <laughs> that stuff. I brush my teeth left-handed. I eat right-handed. So it's a, uh, and I don't think about it. It's just uh, apparently that's that's our. We got some kooky people out there. We need to start a fraternity with that stuff. But um, so with the, uh, and I don't know if you're allowed to chat about this. If if you aren't, that's okay. But uh, I know you, you took a trip to New York visit, to visit the grandkids, but also with the commissioner. Is that stuff that you can chat about? Can you give a little bit to the audience? Yeah, well, it, it was mostly a trip because I have some friends that uh, that uh, 
friends of friends who uh, I've developed a relationship over the years, and they're interested in someday buying a major league franchise. So the commissioner uh, was kind enough to give us some time uh, in regard to that. But, uh, you know, we did talk uh, a bit about the uh, what's happening with the game. You know, revenue is up, attendance is up. Uh, I think the pitch clock universally is liked, and it's, uh, it's kind of uh, re-energized the game that they're playing them in, uh, you know, a little faster time. But the thing that's missing, and I was interviewed by uh, – Morgan Sword and his staff, who was the uh, the head of baseball ops for MLB, and they're trying to figure out a way, it was right up my alley, what we can do to train pitchers to prevent injuries and to train them to go deeper into games. Because what we're missing in Major League Baseball is uh, the starting pitcher matchup that, say, years ago, if Koufax was facing Gibson, I'd buy a ticket to that game because you're going to see them probably in the eighth inning, maybe even in the ninth inning, still dueling it out with one another on their good days, and pitching's going to be the spotlight. Or today it might be uh, Clayton Kershaw against uh, Max Scherzer, somebody like that. But see, we don't we see those pitchers start the game. But we don't see them finish the game. And that's why it's so difficult for me as a, as a pitcher back in that era to begin to compare, for example, Kershaw to Koufax or, say, a Max Scherzer or Justin Verlander to a Bob Gibson. Because if you look at the complete games, those guys had complete games. And any starting pitcher will tell you that had to go nine, that the toughest outs to get are those last six. Uh, You know, you get that eighth inning where you're seeing a guy maybe for the fourth time. And uh, the pitchers today don't have to do that. Uh, I respect them for being the greatest pitchers of their era because they're only doing what they're allowed to do. They're trained to go six or seven innings. And then, well, I've done my job. Even Blake Snell the other day had a no-hitter going. Yeah, uh, he basically took himself out of the game. He said, you know, I'm not used to pitching nine innings. I am getting a little tired, so it's probably good to make a change. Well, you know, years ago, uh, if he were trained in that era, you would never say that. But uh, so I think that's something we'd like to see come back in the game. Uh, The training kids, first of all, to uh, not take a 12-year-old kid and put a radar gun to him and want him to throw harder than he's capable of throwing. We, we need to back off that and, uh, and, and kind of let them play for fun and uh, not injure their arms. So when they get to be 18, uh, <clears throat> you know, they're healthy and they can go forward. Most of these injuries that are happening really, I believe are, they start when they're throwing too hard too soon. Yeah. And then even in spring training now, it's not, it's not spring training. It's becoming spring competition where, I remember years ago going to spring training and Terry Collins was managing the Mets. Matt Harvey was pitching that day. He said, yeah, Harvey, he, he's throwing 100 miles an hour. I said, why? That's just stupid in spring training. Save it for the season. And uh, so they're even they're even like Jacob deGrom. You know, he had a great spring and now he's coming out of there after the surgeries and he's basically not playing at all. Will he ever pitch again? I don't know. So we, we do have to find a way 
to train uh, these young pitchers, uh, even prof- you know, professionally, because as I said earlier in our podcast, I think today's player is as physically gifted as more physically gifted than any player in the history of the game. You look at Brooksy as a third baseman. He was the greatest in that era. You look at the athleticism of Nolan Arenado and Mike Schmidt. Uh, they're just getting better and better. Yeah. But we've got to train them to play 150 games and pitch nine innings. And uh, I don't know what the catalyst for doing that is. I think it's got to start with parents in the in the youth sports. Uh, I heard a comment today from my physical therapist. They got young kids that are playing soccer and one kid said, okay, let's go out and break some ankles. I guess that's a that's a term that young kids would do in plays and playing soccer, meaning, you know, they're pushing the other guy out of the way or something. But that's just something that shouldn't happen in our youth sports. Yeah, they I, I like uh I like the conversations that you're having with people. That to me is a positive sign. And that the conversation that you just mentioned about the development of young pitchers leading up to the major league guys. That's the that's the very conversation that should be uh, haunting everybody right now. That should be on everybody's mind um, at, at all levels, uh, grandparent, parent, kids. Now, did that stem from the commissioner? Or was that somebody else that you mentioned that that happened with? With uh, that happened, happened with the conversation? Yeah. Well, that's the conversation I had with Morgan Sword and his okay. staff. They're, they're polling. Uh, I, I suggested they talk to Brent Strom. Yeah, who has been a you know he's seventy five now and Stromy's been around the game a long time and talked to my friend John Stuper about what they noticed with training pitchers. They're trying to compile uh, a lot of information that they can maybe influence uh, you know professional baseball. But uh, I told him I said that's a steep hill to climb because I think that they can learn a lot. You know, like I learned from Warren Spahn. I think they could learn a lot from me, but I'll use Jim Palmer as a case. Jim Palmer is not welcome in the Oriole Clubhouse anymore. And uh, because, you know, Jim is is one that loves to share what he did and try to help young pitchers to learn, but they don't want to hear that today. They only want to do it uh, the way they're doing it, uh, like a science project. And uh, as a result, uh, you know, we're seeing more injuries and we're seeing great starting pitchers that come out after six innings. I'm eager to see what the twins do in the playoffs next week. They're going to start Pablo Lopez, Sonny Gray, both who have had great years. Uh, Not the win loss total doesn't show it, but uh, that's kind of secondary these days in the specialization of pitching. But our managers going to try to extend their starters in close games in the playoffs and that could be dangerous because they're they've never been asked to do that before. So again, it's going to put a lot of pressure on the on the bullpens. But yeah, I hope we can uh, we can train our our young pitchers to uh, starting in youth baseball to stay healthy, and then be more durable when they get into professional baseball if they do get into professional baseball. Yeah. Well, the you hit on the very point I was going to say. The answer is right in front of Morgan. Um, it's a steep cl- slope to climb, but if they want to get at it in a hurry, open up the organizations to men like yourself, like Jim Palmer, uh, that have yeah. been there, done yeah, that. They, they won't do it. Like I'll go to, I'll go to Minnesota if they make it to the division series and I'll say hello to Pablo and Joe Ryan, but I won't, I won't touch the clubhouse because I've been there before and they, 
Uh, they don't want anything. You know, I'll give you an example. Jim was talking to Jack Flaherty, who's a pitcher the Orioles uh, picked up with yeah. uh, from Cardinals. Yeah. Jim was a high fastball pitcher. And so Jim is explaining to Jack how, you know, my first fastball, high fastball, the guy's a little late on it. I throw him another one. And so as long as I read the bat and he shows me he can't catch up with it, I might throw him three in a row. And Flaherty looked at him like, what? Why would you do that? Why would you throw a guy three pitches in a row? Well, Jack Flaherty's talking to a guy who's a perennial 20-game winner and a Hall of Famer. Instead of asking him, you know, (laughs) instead of questioning why he did it, he might want to learn and try to do it himself. Yeah. that's that's kind of uh, an example of how they they don't want to uh, hear what we did uh, the way we did it because they have a entirely different approach today. So it was, it was why more in an accusatory way rather than a, an inquisitive way to be like, yeah, right, like, yeah, crazy. Well, what do you what we we uh, we didn't get to the playoffs yet. I know you started touching on the Twins. Um, if you've been following this close race, obviously it's you know there, there's half the league gets in now with the wild card stuff, but. I've been watching it more closely now as we're getting getting to the deadline. I did see last night. It was nice to see. Uh, I saw Garrett Cole go deep into the game the other day. Chris Bassett with Toronto did. I know they're trying to get their innings. Uh, I think Bassett's thrown. I told my son, I said, go look. And I use Jim Palmer. Go look at the Jim Palmer Orioles. And uh, everybody's celebrating 200 innings right now. Um, yeah. Those those guys were – that was half their season right there. Now, that was about the first uh... – that was about uh, early August where you hit 200, maybe late July. Yep. Well, yeah, I think in the Garrett Cole case, that was so nice because with the Yankees having a miserable year, he has really stood out as to how he's performed consistently. And I, I would think he's he's going to be a, regardless of the win total, he'll be a, a lock for uh, the American League Cy Young Award winner. Yeah, and that'll uh, be his Looking start. at the playoffs, uh, I think all of a sudden what could be an encouraging sign for the Twins, first of all, uh, there's this statistic called quality starts, which a lot of old dinosaurs and from my era, um, they poo-poo that. They say six innings, three earned runs or less. That's not that big a deal. Well, the statistics, since I was announcing back in the 80s, prove that if you get a quality start, uh, six innings or three runs or less from your starter, you will win uh, close to 70% of your games. Uh, But you have to have a decent bullpen. Now, in the Twins case, they they lead the major leagues in those kind of starts between uh, Sonny Gray and Pablo Lopez and Bailey Ober and Joe Ryan, uh, probably uh, now that uh, Kenta Maeda is back. So it kind of depends on their bullpen. 25 of those games they lost, their bullpen's ERA was about eight, and they weren't scoring any runs. So what they've done now is they have two pitchers, uh, Chris Paddock, who they they signed as a free agent knowing that he still was rehabbing from Tommy John surgery, but they're using him out of the bullpen, and he's one of these late-inning flamethrowers that can maybe just get you through one inning and then they've also activated Brock Stewart, who was another one of those guys. So suddenly the uh, Twins, even though they're the third best record of the division winners, I think they could be they could be a factor. I think the toughest matchup for them will be if Houston yeah. is the is the sixth seed, and you can lead off with Verlander and Framber Valdez and the experience of that lineup. Even though the Twins have a, a home field advantage, 
they'll be a more challenging task than if, if they had a chance to play uh, Toronto or even Texas. So we still have a few days to to find out uh, how that's going to be. But it is, even though I kind of poo-poo at the uh, the third wild card, you know, it's like rewarding mediocrity. But but in reality, some of these third wild card teams have better records than some of the division winners. So uh, it is going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, and I know initially when we were talking, we had no idea this matchup would happen, Houston and Minnesota. But those were two teams that you thought had a shot to come out of the the American League. Yeah, and I'm so impressed with the now last night again the the Orioles with a shutout performance. And I was kind of looking at them in September. Are, you know, young kids are they going to crack? But man, they, you know, young kids today they're they're sort of immune to uh, to pressure as. Uh, as Pablo Lopez was going to start next week for the Twins game one, he said, you know, pressure is a privilege. This is what we play for to get there. And we, I think they've learned to embrace it more, the young players today, uh, and not fear it. And uh, so that's why I think the Orioles with those, those young players are just as much of a factor as any team out there, even though they, they lack the experience. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very surprised uh, by the fact that they just keep moving forward because we talked about it maybe a month ago where this is a whole new ball game for them, pardon the pun, where they've never been here before. And we were curious to see how they would respond to it. And they're going to be fun to watch. I, I've been watching the Blue Jays as of late, uh, another young team. They have four starters. And I, I didn't realize this till last night, which, again, we celebrate. We, 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 it's, a, it's a war on meritocracy right here. We celebrate 175 strikeouts right now. Um, they had four pitchers uh, get their 175th strikeout as of last night, and I guess that's fairly rare. And uh, yeah, they got uh, they got uh, you know they they do have some potential dominant starters. You know, Jose Barrios, who I saw when he was with the with the Twins. I mean, he's capable of pitching a gem, but they don't have that consistency. I'd say the top guy, of course, is Gosman, uh, uh, and. And again, who's going to show up in playoff time? I think what we've seen or what I've seen from Pablo Lopez and Sonny Gray is the consistency start to start, uh, which is why they lead the league in that category of of quality starts. The percentages say if you get those starts all the time, uh, you'll win about 70% of your game. So if the Twins get good bullpen production and now they've They've uh, they've getting some they're getting some uh, offensive production from some of their lesser known uh, players. You know, it's still going to come down, I think, to who's got the most effective bullpen. But the the Blue Jays certainly are capable of uh, of throwing some good starters out there with Bassett, Barrios, and Gosman. Yeah, and uh, so you're and I'm very surprised Texas ended up with the two seed because as of well, as of today, anyway. Yeah, they got a chance to win that thing. The the thing again, going back to the bullpens, is see if you follow John Romano, I think it's Jordan Romano, the the closer for the Blue Jays. Yep, he has really gotten touched up the last few times. And see, when you use relievers that often for the whole year, they reach that point in late September where man, it's it's just not there like it was say in July. And that's where I think the Twins have a, a an advantage in that they're going to activate Paddock and, and Stewart, who are like fresh arms that haven't been used all year. So, you know, whose bullpen, uh, you know, the 
uh, the, uh, the Astros have Presley out there and they have, uh, some quality arms too. Uh, but, uh, are they gonna, are they gonna suffer from overuse come October? We'll find out next week. That's a great point. That's the experience as a, as an analyst that, that you've built over decades, uh, not just as a, as a commentator, but as a player to, to recognize that. To keep well, I, I could sense it in my own career when I played. You know, there were some years when I look back on and I never wanted to miss a start, but I had a couple Septembers where I just didn't have the same stuff. Uh, I know in 75, I won my 20th game, uh, I think in late August, and I never won another game. I had a couple decent games in September, but not a lot. I can just, I can just feel that I was, you know, 300 innings a year before I was a little worn down. So from that standpoint, I think it is it is fair to uh, to kind of manage your pitchers a little bit better today. Maybe give them an extra day here and there that could help out. And the same thing was true when I pitched out of the bullpen. You know, you get up, you warm up, maybe you don't get in a game. Then you get up again and you get in a game. And all of a sudden it's September and, and that fastball just doesn't have that same life to it, that same movement. And uh, with with more and more specialization, that's going to uh, take its toll on more and more relievers. Yeah, the shorter the starters go, the the more we're going to see this come playoff time when we get this uh, August September with the abuse of uh, relievers. Yeah, the, I think that's going to be the next dilemma with pitching here, and it's it's logical. Anybody in the National League catch your eye that uh, similar pattern? You know, the surprising team there is, and I got to be honest, I can only think of a couple of their, you know, their. I like this Zach Gallon who pitches, but the Diamondbacks, you know, are coming up. But but in the end, I, I can't see anybody uh, beating the Dodgers or the Braves, uh, and and so you know the odds on would be for them to to hook up in the. And actually, the NLCS, now the Brewers fans and Diamondbacks and so forth, they don't want to hear that. But I still think that uh, that they're the too, too strong. I mean, they just, with J.D. Martinez, I think they have now three guys with over 100 RBIs or four guys, something like that. Yeah. So, no, they do. Yeah, both both Atlanta and, and, uh, and the Dodgers have some potential explosive lineups. Uh, but uh, same old thing. It's all about the pitching, who's going to pitch best. And. They have Kershaw, who, uh, you know, for six innings, I think is has been as good as anybody. And uh, Atlanta's pitchers, uh, Freed's coming back from his injury, but uh, Strider hasn't been quite the same, I think, his last few starts as he was earlier in the year. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's that's what will be the telling tale is are they, are they run down a little bit come October. Yep. And maybe that question that you're asking, it kind of brings us full circle back to your, your conversation with the the group uh, was it last night or the night before where you talked about the the arms of young pitchers if the commissioner's office uh, is truly interested in that I mean th- th- this this show right here today you touched on the beginning the middle and the end of all of it and you know the fatigue that happens it's, it's not because they don't want to they're not trained that way um, yeah. you, you were you were feeling that after 300 innings these guys are feeling it after 150. So where's the yeah, disc- you know, I, I sent a picture to Morgan Sword. He got a kick out of it. I sent him a picture of our 1958 Missoula Timberjacks. Uh, we had 16 players, and one of them was our playing manager. Our guys played every day, and if somebody got hurt, they'd call somebody up from, you know, send somebody from the minor league. We had seven pitchers, and that was our team. So that's why I think we had – I know I had with the playoffs 245 innings. I think we had a couple guys that were – 
up there toward 200 innings. And so uh, what I was talking about with Morgan and his staff is uh, you need to somehow with these minor league rosters not allow like Tampa Bay might use 40 different pitchers. Yeah, they're bringing them up. Bringing them down. Yeah. So you got to limit the number of pitchers that a team can take and limit the rosters, really. And so you force these players to play more games and the pitchers to pitch more innings. And then they're capable of pitching more innings if parents and coaches haven't ruined them in high school and college. You know, the year, for years, the, the, the worry out there was that college coaches would overpitch these potential prospects. I know the University of Texas had some great, uh, Dessen, Kurt Dressendorfer, I think his name was. Well, they just used him too much in, in college. You know, he'd pitch, uh, say, uh, nine innings on a Friday, and then they'd bring him back on Sunday to pitch in relief. And a lot of uh, potential big league pitchers were, were derailed because they got overused in college. And then we have to even take it back deeper now into high school and little league and youth baseball that uh, we we have to kind of let them, uh, you know, play for enjoyment and now not overuse them at the expense, you know, trying to get a, a win at the expense of overusing these kids. And stay off that focus of speed uh, as opposed yeah. to precision. When you're precise, speed happens naturally. Um and I was talking about that with the golf swing. Uh, yeah. I said there's a lot of similarities in golf and pitching because in pitching, uh, it, it's not the same as hitting like Sam Snead and Ted Williams used to argue about what's tougher. And Snead always said to Williams, well, we have to play our foul balls. You know, you can hit the ball anywhere. So in golf, you need you need control and balance and you need to find a swing that you can swing at a speed and where you can hit the ball close to where you want to. And, you know, you do that by hitting short shots. And in pitching, you know, you go through your motion with your eyes closed. It, it, it seems so easy that way. Golf, swing the club uh, in practice seems so easy. And then when they put that ball down, it becomes a, a whole different pressure there. So, uh, you know, we can learn that control and, and balance and tempo as young pitchers by just throwing at a short distance and not forcing as they did my, my grandson when he was 12 to pitch from 60 feet and he ends up with a strained growth plate. Oh, uh, we sure. got to stop that stuff. Yeah. We'll keep pushing on this. I think the conversations are needed. I know sometimes it probably feels like nobody's listening, but as you know, here we've got 50,000 plus subscribers paying attention every week and you're hitting 74 countries. So we'll, I think, if if you if you got the energy, we'll keep we'll keep uh, banging away at this, and we'll save the baseball world one kid at a time. That'll be our yeah. That would that would be a nice way to kind of as, as long as I'm able to to kind of contribute, uh, if not directly with big league pitchers that I think uh, could use some of our advice, but at least uh, to maybe make an maybe make uh, some impact on on saving the arms of young pitchers so they can pitch longer and better as professionals if they get that far. Yeah. Well, or at least be able to comb their hair when they're 40 years old, they right. yeah. arm, uh, you know, to that extent. But, you know, and I, I think that conversation, when you brought that up with Morgan Sword, that to me is exciting that they're actually having that conversation with you because, I mean, they, they've got to be thinking it themselves. They're not dumb people. They they get it. And to have that open conversation means I think the pendulum is going to start swinging back um, in that direction. And my hope is that the doors get open to, to all the living Hall of Famers, all the former pros, all the guys that have done that to come in and just 
let's have these conversations. Let's let people figure out who they are in the game. And, you know, again, let's, let's save these arms bit by bit. I hope you're right. I think so. I'm going to keep pushing Jim. As long as I got guys like you with me, I, I, I think we can win this thing. Good. Uh, anything you want to leave the audience with today? No, let's just, uh, it's an exciting weekend starting tonight, you know, with these last three, uh, particularly uh, with, with that uh, second and third wildcard spot, just to find out who's going to be there. So, uh, uh, that will be fun. I know. I know. Major League Baseball is loving it because uh, readership will be up, and uh, viewer—I should say—viewership will be up, and streaming, and uh, and then into the playoffs. That's that's when the fan that doesn't follow it during the season uh, starts getting excited about their hometown team. Yeah, and, and by all admittance, I haven't watched a lot of baseball this year, um, and I'm I'm starting to tune in now myself uh, a little bit more. Uh, with a, with a keen eye. So, well, thanks. Thanks so much for what you contributed today. And I appreciate you sharing the, the intimate relationship with Brooks Robinson. I think everybody appreciates his, uh, his wizardry in the field and probably underappreciates him as a hitter. And I think right. you shed, you shed light on that because he's so good defensively. Yeah. And um, his durability, someone brought that up to me last night, um, is often underlooked as well. Uh, and again, as a, as a role model of Cal Ripken, I, I think you're probably right in that regard. But uh, 50,000 subscribers here on Real Voice of the Game. Thank you so much for your support. Keep providing us with that that uh, feedback. Keep supporting our shows. Five stars. Make some good comments to, to Jim. Feed me questions because we'll, these shows are for you. Uh, we want to make sure that we're providing great content for you every week. And as a reward for that, in addition to our, our new uh, cup of coffee in the bigs here with, with iHeartRadio, I want to make sure that our audience pay attention this weekend. Our affiliates will go up. We have almost 250 affiliates, and these are affiliates that you gave me as our audience members through our questions going back and forth, the things that you purchase every year for your kids. So we've developed relationships with them with the network. You will get discounts by using those those uh, same things you buy anyway. Use our code, get your discount, and now that will allow us to snowball and start rewarding some of our podcast hosts here for the great job they do for you every week. So. Thanks again. Keep doing that. Jim, thanks so much for what you do for us. I appreciate you. Enjoyed it, Dave, as always. Look forward to our next one. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You too. One last time. And the ball goes up like the moon so bright. Swings his bat with all his might. The world's still, still can be. A baseball falls. That's strike three. Now it's supper time.